You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. This podcast is presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, telling Oklahoma stories through its people since 1927. Follow them online at oklahomahof.com and definitely on Instagram at oklahomahof. Let's get into today's episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hoon here, your host, back with another episode in Oklahoma City today with Oklahoma Hall of Fame inductee Mo Anderson. Mo, thank you so much for inviting us into your house today. Thanks. Thanks for coming. I'm thrilled to have you. Definitely. As I as we chatted before, um, I was here probably eight years ago. It seems so, eight, seven years ago. It seems so long now. But as a young Keller Williams agent, you invited a lot of us over uh, and opened your home up. And, and we've told many stories from that time, uh, touring your house, your ice cream parlor, your cutting room. <laughs> we had a blast here. And I, I, I mean, I tell people about that a lot when your name comes into conversation. So it's great to be back. I'm excited to share some more stories. Um, but I guess, uh, just start off with how, I mean, what have you been up to recently? How are things? I mean, are you still busy? Well, I survived COVID and now I am busy as can be. Yeah. And during COVID, when I got better, I was on Zoom calls from morning until night. So I'm a little bit tired of Zoom, but I appreciate the tool. <laughs> definitely, definitely, and always working, always moving forward, and that's that's great to hear. Um, what is your for people listening? What is your I guess current position at Cal Williams or your current role right now? Well, I my current role is vice chairman of the board, and then I own the Oklahoma region, so I'm very involved in the region, mm-hmm. and I'm an investor in two market centers, one in Oklahoma City and one in Edmond. And I've been doing a lot of work in the Oklahoma City market center, and then I'm sure next will be Edmond. Plus, I do a number of projects for international. My yeah. favorite one is the inspirational morning at the end of our convention and it's the closing session of the entire convention. Mm-hmm. And this year we met in person. So in February, I had my 10,000 people in front of me at yeah. the at the inspirational morning. And usually we have close to 20. Yeah. But we uh, cut it to a smaller group simply because mm-hmm. of COVID yeah. still hanging around a bit. But great to be back in person, back on oh, stage. Oh, yes. Everybody was so excited. Yeah. So a lot of people listening, um, you know, will have heard of you. But if they haven't, they should definitely go read your book. And I'll link that in the description. Um, a Joy-Filled Life. I had a great time reading it. And it tells a lot about your story. And we're going to skim over that today because we could spend 10 hours all day telling stories from from that book. But if you could take us back and kind of set some context about kind of where you grew up and then how you get into real estate as a, as a young woman. I grew up in the general area of Enid, Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. specifically the towns called Ames, Drummond and Wacomas. But of course I was always in the country because my father was a sharecropper or Some people called him a tenant farmer. Mm -hmm. We never owned the land. 
and we shared our crops and money with the owner of the property. So it was there on the farm that I really, really learned to work as a very young child. And boy, did that pay off for me later in life. (laughs) It's much harder to develop a work ethic in a child when they live in the city because the work on the farm never ends. Yeah, I, we've. That's every person I've interviewed that's in agriculture shares the same thing. They, you know, it, it doesn't stop. It's a tough life, and especially in Oklahoma when the weather changes daily, it's uh, it's it's. You need to pray a lot. My favorite trips to mm-hmm. town were to the feed store because. My father let me choose the sacks of feed because the fabric in those sacks would become my dress. My mother was talented and she knew how to sew. So I got to pick the fabric. But oh, you have no idea how I longed for uh, buying fabric from a store in Enid. (laughs) That just seemed so much better. But we did the feed sack mm-hmm. fabrics for my clothes growing yeah. up. So going forward, you go into school and you're into academics and, and that is kind of your way to get a job and move forward. What was the, the little dream of, of, of Mo back then? Well, my dreaming place was the pasture because mm-hmm. my job was to bring in the cattle in the evening And that was where I dreamed, and I dreamed all sorts of things. But the dream that I hung on on to and the one that was prevalent or prominent in my mind and heart was to be a public school music teacher. Oh, I was passionate about that because one of my teachers had inspired me, one of my music teachers in Drummond, Oklahoma, Nellie Brinker was her name she inspired me to be a teacher Mm -hmm. and so you had a love for music obviously oh yes and when I was um, I think 12 my parents found a pitiful old beat-up piano that someone was wanting to give away Mm -hmm. some of the keys would stick it was out of tune the pedals didn't function properly But I didn't care. At last, I had a piano. In addition to that, I developed a scrapbook Mm -hmm. in the fourth grade, and it was filled with black ebony Steinway grand pianos because my dream was to have a really good, wonderful piano. And I would go a mile down the road to my first music teacher, And I rode my horse, and the horse would not cross a bridge. I would get off of the horse, lead the horse across the bridge, continue walking the next half mile because I couldn't get myself back on the horse, have my piano lesson, and my teacher, her name was Bess, she would help me get on the horse and send me back I would get to the bridge, he wouldn't go over the bridge, and I'd walk the rest of the way home. (laughs) Uh, After several years, she said I needed a more advanced 
teacher. Mm -hmm. So I studied under um, Mr. Hanna, who was in charge of the music in the schools in Hennessy, Oklahoma. And that was when I, during harvest time, I would drive myself to Hennessy praying that the highway patrol would not stop me because I had no driver's license. Farm kids learned to drive very young Mm -hmm. because we had to on the farm. Trucks, pickups, and cars. And I would drive myself by myself (laughs) to Hennessy, Oklahoma for my piano lesson. And then later in high school, I studied under an amazing teacher, Adela Mm -hmm. Beard. But I liked playing basketball a little bit better than I did practicing. And so I didn't become as good as I could have been. Right. (laughs) But at that point, does that lead you into education and becoming a teacher after you graduate? Well, I got a scholarship my first year of college. Mm -hmm. I attended Oklahoma College for Women in Chickasha. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went there because of that scholarship. I really didn't know if I would get to go to university. And then my second year, I transferred to OU because... I felt a degree from OU might hold a little more power than a smaller school, only to discover that at OU I had no way of becoming a music major. The practice rooms were closed at 10 p.m., and of course I worked until 9.30, a quarter of 10. And so I tried to find a piano. I couldn't afford to rent one. I couldn't afford to buy one. I begged people to give me one. And finally, I gave up the dream. Mm -hmm. I just thought, I'll major in elementary education and give up my dream. I I usually don't give up, but I did in that case. You cannot imagine how I felt during my first interview for a teaching position Mm -hmm. because the principal at Traub Elementary School interviewed me. His name was Lester Goldsboro. And at the end of the interview, my first interview, he said, would you consider teaching music a half day and high achieving fifth graders a half day? Well, I just nearly fell out of my chair. And the lesson I learned from that is when God puts a dream in your DNA, it comes true regardless of your circumstances. So I was a music teacher in Midwest City for two years. We moved to Ponca City. And Ponca City is literally, back then, was a music teacher's paradise. And they asked me to teach at Jefferson Elementary. And I taught for a total of 14 years. And it was really joyful back in those days. I taught on the on the 
other side of town where the poor kids were. Most of them were really impoverished and struggling. Well, I grew up that way, so I didn't give those kids an inch. (laughs) And I determined that I wanted them to learn what it felt like to do something really well. And to this day, when I play the reel-to-reel tapes that I had digitized and put on CDs, I mean, yeah, CDs, people are shocked at how these kids sound. They are so good. And that was a very joyful time of my life because I learned how to teach them to find their singing voice And I learned the importance of having standards because standards raise people up. Yeah. Where does your your faith background come from? Uh, From my home life. My parents were Mm -hmm. um, devoted Christians. We had family devotions each day. And um, we attended a little country church. And I accepted Christ as my, as my Savior, as a young child. Mm-hmm. So that's where that came from. Yeah, and still a huge part of your life today. Oh, yes. But I did go through an agnostic period. <laughs> so it wasn't all. Yeah. Well, you've got to, sometimes you've got to go through that period to appreciate the other things, right? That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So 14 years you teach as a, as a music teacher and, you know, you're, you're showing these kids, you know, you're not giving them an inch, you're bringing them up because you, ha- you can relate, you've been through that. And it's great when you're teaching and you can relate to the kids that you're teaching because, you know, there's an element of respect there that some other teachers might not connect with because they may have not grown up the same way. Well, I was cheering them in their football game on Saturday, and they were singing for me like birds Monday through Friday. And you see, I had them every day for 40 minutes, and you can teach them so much when you have them every day, and you can build on what you did the day before, and the learning occurs much faster. So by the time they finished sixth grade, they could sing or hum many of the uh, um, arias of of, um, Amal and the Night Visitors, because I would repeat that opera each year, every year. Has there been any occasions where some of your past students have come up to you over the years and just said, thank you so much for what you did, even though we didn't enjoy it sometimes? And I stay in touch with many of them at Christmas, but the most exciting thing in that regard was I was giving a speech in Houston for mm-hmm. Keller Williams. And for the first time, I started talking about my choir at Jefferson Elementary. I don't really remember why, but, but I talked about the standards and how it was not acceptable. Mm-hmm to not sound good, and we would work on a phrase until it was just right, and they knew what the sound I wanted. Mm -hmm. And I told the group, 
so many of those kids had so many problems and so many struggles, but they looked forward to singing their concert in December because the high school students came, people from all around came because they'd heard about these kids. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just it was just amazing. But I was giving this speech and suddenly I heard someone in the audience and it sounded like a cry. It sounded like somebody was crying and I thought Oh, I hope I haven't offended anybody. And then she spoke up and she said, I'm brand new with Keller Williams and I was one of her choir kids. That's amazing. Her name was Leslie Lessert. And that was so exciting because she just, she talked a little bit and she just affirmed everything I was saying. Yeah. And it was, it was really a... A special moment. That is special for sure. Um, you know, because like I said, it reinforces everything you've just spoken about and it's just standing right there. And she knew she knew me, but mm-hmm. see, they called me Mrs. Anderson mm-hmm. and they never really knew me as Mo. Yeah. And... <laughs> And she knew she knew me. And then when I started talking about Jefferson, she knew exactly who I was. And to this day, I have, when I can, uh, a brunch in Ponca City. And so many of the teachers are now deceased. Mm -hmm. So I'm including this younger generation. She drives up from Houston for that little brunch at the Marlin Mansion. That's brilliant. You mentioned Keller Williams, obviously a huge part of, of your life still. Um, how do we transition to being a teacher into, you know, moving to Edmond, opening your own brokerage and, and Richard came it? home one evening and he walked in the door in Ponca City. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked for Conoco back then. And he said, I've enrolled you in a class. And I said, well, what class did you enroll me in? And he said, a real estate class. And I said, why in the world did you do that? And he said, because we haven't bought our first home and we need to learn about this. And and then he lied through his teeth and he said, besides, I just want you in the class with me. Well, he was already thinking in his head about how hard I worked as a teacher Mm -hmm. and if I could be in a field where I was rewarded according to how hard I worked, that I'd probably make a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) So we went to the class and then we took our state test Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd flunked it because I really struggled yeah. with the test. He made, you know, this really high score because he's real smart. And I, driving home, I said, this is embarrassing. I have a degree from the University of Oklahoma, and I think I flunked the state real estate test. Two weeks later, I, I get a letter that says... You've made the lowest score you could possibly make and still pass. And I'm here to tell you somebody made a mistake because I did not pass that test. 
test. But when I took the broker's test, I really studied and I did really well. Mm-hmm. I also so I made it. I, I also had the minimum score. You can you can but I, it took me four tries to pass my real estate exam. But I got a seventy five, I think is what you're supposed to get, and I was so happy that I didn't have to go back to that horrible test room ever again. <laughs> I think in our day it was seventy. Yeah. Was passing. Just that's awesome. So you both got into real estate at the same time then? Uh, we did. He didn't stay in it very long because he accepted a position mm-hmm. at the Health Science Center. In fact, we didn't start our real estate career until we moved to Edmond. Mm-hmm. And we moved here because he accepted a position at the Health Science Center. Yeah. And once you get into Edmond... You think, I, I don't want to be a teacher. I'm going to give this real estate a go. I'm going to give it a try. Yeah. A try. And I tell people, you can't do that. You have to say, I've made a commitment. Yeah. There is no try. There right? is no try. There is no try. <laughs> um, so so then, you know, you get, you fall in love, right? You, you know, that's kind of where your Keller Williams journey, I guess, starts. Well, the first eight months were so miserable because I, we didn't have training back then. And it was very difficult for me. The transition was so hard because my heart really wasn't in real estate. And then I prayed a prayer and asked God to give me three trans, three transactions which through uh, some unusual circumstances that happened. And after I got the three transactions all in the month of August of that year, I changed my really bad attitude. And I moved forward with positivity because I felt like maybe I really was functioning in his will. And I did 35 transactions in six months. That's crazy. Yeah. Still to this day, that's crazy, right? You know, in six months, that's a lot of business for a brand new person. Yeah. So my stinking thinking really held me back. (laughs) And then I um, moved into running our first office that we that we owned mm-hmm. and discovered that my gifts were more geared to building a business and encouraging agents to succeed mm-hmm. back to your love of teaching right than it was to sell list yeah. and sell yeah i enjoyed meeting the people finding them a home but my passion was building a business yeah so i've certainly had a chance to do that in the last 30 years <laughs> so at this point you're like I said you're off to the races you're your business building and you've got agents coming in where does like when does the the when does Gary Keller come on the radar and where does he start seeing your name and and how do you transition then into further leadership up kind of the chain of Kate Keller Williams? Our first company that we owned was called 
Titan Realtors, and it was in Edmond. The next year, we purchased a Century 21 franchise, and we became known inside of that franchise mm -hmm. as one of the top companies in the in the country. In fact, we were number three for a period of five years out of 7,500 offices in the U.S. and Canada, which was quite a feat back then. Shortly after that, we began to have people from all over the country want to buy us. And the reason is because we had 55% market share in Edmond. <clears throat> and the only people who actually came and made us an offer contingent on their due diligence, of course, was Merrill Lynch. And they were venturing into the real estate business. And they offered us $200,000 more than what we believed our company was worth. And we saw it as an opportunity to, we saw it as an opportunity to really um, move forward in, and we sold the company to Merrill Lynch and I began to develop uh, Merrill Lynch offices in the Oklahoma City area, which was preparing me for my next door that God opened. I had no idea at the time, but I did a startup. I did an acquisition. Um, I did a turnaround, and of course, uh, I think I did actually did two startups, if I remember right, and really built, built a solid organization for Merrill Lynch. And then Merrill Lynch decided to sell to Prudential, and they wanted me to buy back all the offices in Oklahoma City. I chose not to do that because when I read and studied the Prudential franchise document, I discovered it was really pretty much the same old model. And I knew that real estate needed to take a leap to the next level in terms of what the model looked like. So I resigned. I'll never forget when I came home and told Richard I had resigned because our attorneys had negotiated me a, a lovely six-figure income, and I resigned. And he nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> so I started, I had a non-compete, so for two or three years, I, I had my own consulting training company. And that was an adventure, and I did really well. Certainly not making the kind of money I made in owning a company, but I did. You know, we were able to put food on the table and make our house payment. And, of course, that entered the period where Penn Square Bank had gone down and the economy began to crash, which highly affected us.
because we were in some transactions with some very wealthy people in the city, and they went bankrupt because of Penn Square. Thank goodness we didn't have our money there. So uh, we ended up, because we'd signed notes joint and several, which scripture tells you not to do, (laughs) Uh, we lost our savings in a pretty big hurry by paying their debts. So it, we entered into a really, really interesting, tough time. And one day, um, um, I decided to go to Dallas for a consulting visit with the top Century 21 broker in the United States. He was Mike Bowman Company in Dallas. I took with me someone I just met, Jean Lowell. And while we were there, she said, let's visit an office called Keller something. She said, I have a former agent who is running that office. So we stopped at a little Keller Williams office, and I met her friend, the team leader. And a couple of weeks later, I get a call from somebody named Gary Keller. And he began to call me several times a week. And it was very interesting because he talked about the history of real estate. He talked about the future of real estate. He never did talk about Keller Williams. Finally, one day, he said, may I come to Oklahoma City and meet you? And I said, of course you can. And this was before the Internet. I had no idea what he looked like. We didn't have cell phones then. And uh, it was like 1991 when this happened. So I told him I'd be wearing a blue suit and I'd have a name badge on that said Pro Development Systems, which was the name of my consulting company. And you could meet people at the end of the jetway back then. That was before 9-11. So I'm standing looking for my 50-year-old banker based on my telephone calls with him. Uh, I figured he had a little bit of silver hair. I figured he was tall. He was stout. He was, you know, a big, forceful person because he was so amazing on the phone. And I'm standing there waiting, and this kid walks up to me, sticks his hand out, and says, Hi, I'm Gary Keller. And the first words out of my mouth were, oh my goodness, I'm old enough to be your mother. (laughs) Turns out, he was a year older than my oldest son. He was 34 back then. So I met him when he was 34 and I was 54. Isn't that funny? That's awesome. He was this skinny, little, scrawny kid. (laughs) So um, we visited with him all day long, and um, 
we, Richard and I took him back to the airport to catch his flight back to Austin. And coming home, Richard said, of all the people we've met in Century 21 in Prudential, this little whippersnapper is smarter than any of them. And I agreed with him. Gary continued to call me. And then one day he calls and invites me to come to Austin. Now, this was an interesting call because we were totally broke by then. Our savings was gone from having to pay the debt of our partners who had gone bankrupt. Uh, We had lost... Uh, Richard was negotiating with all of our investments because I don't know if you remember how bad it was in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, but it was bad after Penn Square fell. It just, and the oil, uh, OPEC lowered the price of oil to $8 a barrel. It was really a difficult time. So here we are, as broke as a church mice. We still had our home, of course, but we had basically negotiated away all of our investments. Oh, it was a tough time. And he said, I want you to come to Austin because I'm bringing in a consulting company and I want to take my little bitty company. He only had seven or eight offices at the time in Texas. He said, I want to take it national. And in my head, I thought, I don't have the money to buy a plane ticket. We don't even have the money for the gasoline to get there and back in the car. I certainly don't have money for a hotel. And he kept talking about how great this meeting was going to be, and he wanted me there. He said, will you come? And out of my mouth, I said, yes, I will be there. And I thought, how am I going to get there? So we hung up the phone, and that afternoon, a credit card. You know, back in those days, you'd get a credit card every week from somebody. A credit card came in the mail. I activated that sucker, and I used it for an airplane ticket to Austin. And the credit line on that card was enough for me to do that trip. And I often tell agents that my parents would have died because they didn't believe in credit cards, and they believed that you should have the money before you did anything. And... Uh, Fortunately, I made enough in my consulting business that I was able to pay off that credit card. But when your back's in the corner, you do what you have to do when you feel like you've got to do it. So I go to that meeting. And on the second day of this three-day meeting, I learn what the model is that he uses to build these offices. And that evening, I left the meeting, went upstairs to my hotel room, and I said, Richard, are you sitting down? And he knows what that means. It means Mo's off on a tangent. I said, 
I'm going to develop Oklahoma as a region. Mm -hmm. And Gary doesn't know it yet, but that's what I'm going to do. And I explained to him why. And he said, what are you going to do for money, Mo? And I said, well, I don't know, but the money will show up because I was born to do this. And um, the next morning, Gary came to the meeting and I said, I don't want to talk to you anymore about a training contract. I want to go develop Oklahoma as a Keller Williams region. Mm -hmm. And he said, Mo, I don't even have a document. I haven't gotten that far. And I said, Oklahoma is a non-disclosure state, and all you have to do is to write a letter saying, I have the rights to use your systems and models. That's all you have to do. And I stuck out my hand. And finally, he shook my hand. And I said, Gary, I need to tell you something. My daddy taught me that a handshake is more precious and sacred than a contract. So we went into business together on a handshake. And it was months later when he had attorneys draw up the document. And he didn't make me pay for the region until after, of course, the document was done. And by then, I had saved up enough money from my consulting company to be able to pay him. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's a great story. <laughs> so that's how it started. That's how it started. Yeah. You came back to Oklahoma and, and put the model in place and, and put everything you learned. And I did so well in Oklahoma that yeah. three years later, he asked if I would be willing to move to Austin, become his partner mm -hmm. and his CEO, and help him build the company. Yeah. I told him how much of the company I wanted him to give me if I'm actually going to move to Austin because we had just had our first grandchild and that was a really diff difficult decision to know whether or not I should move to Austin. And Richard said, have you ever heard of an airplane? You can fly home on the weekends. So I moved to Austin, and the rest is history. Uh, at the end of my 10 years as CEO, because I was totally worn out, I, um, and I was having some health issues, I have a pacemaker. That's my trophy. <laughs> uh, I had built the company to 50,000 associates, and we had 580 offices in the U.S., and I had opened Canada. Oh, so you off to Canada as well? Yes, wow. I opened Canada during my 10 years. Yeah. And then I set up the research department so that we could begin to research uh -huh. some of the foreign markets and determine whether or not we wanted to go in there. We did research for, I think it was two years or three years. Yeah. But now we have 180-some thousand agents, and we're in 40 nine countries. Yeah. 
I'm one of them. I'm one of those agents. That's right. That's crazy. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, and now I know what what the you know the the kind of systems are and everything, but um, and the culture and and just kind of you know other agents may look in and and think that you know that they look, see all other KW agents and just think that you all drink the Kool Aid. But I mean, there's so many things that are great about Keller Williams, and and I mean, like I said, I'm one of those agents. What is the kind of the, the culture and, and the the statement that Cal Williams goes by. I know what it is, but I want you to tell everybody what it is too. Well, we have four pillars mm-hmm. to the culture. And the first pillar is what we call the predetermined way we're going to treat each other. And that pillar involves an acronym with letters and those letters mean something for example i'll just give you two or three it begins with w and that stands for win win or no deal the second letter is i integrity do the right thing Uh, the next one is the first of four c's customers always come first and then we have Uh, commitment, communication, creativity, and then we go to the two T's. The first one is team. Together, everyone achieves more. And the second T is trust. It begins with honesty. And then we've recently added an E, and it's equity, and it means opportunity for all. And then the last letter of this acronym is S, success through people, not around people, but through people. And then we have our second pillar, which consists of our mission, our vision, and our values, our beliefs, and our perspective. And our mission, I love. I think it's the greatest mission of any company in the world. It's careers worth having, businesses worth owning, lives worth living, experiences worth giving, and legacies worth leaving. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, our vision is to be the company of choice. If we do all of everything in our mission statement, which really reveals our purpose, Mm -hmm. then people will choose us. And then, of course, our beliefs are the Y4C, two Ts. And then we have our values. And our most prominent value statement is God and family first and the business second. And we really encourage our agents to put their, whatever their faith is and their family first and the business second. So those are, and then we have um, two more pillars. One is the six personal perspectives which are the ways, which is the way we want our people to think. And it's about self-mastery and so on and so forth. And then the last pillar is 
simply a sheet that shows our agents what a Keller Williams, really a cultured office looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, where you do things for other people anonymously and you figure solutions for the company that are best for all. It has about 51 points on it. We don't expect anybody to memorize it, but we expect everybody to have a copy and look at it once in a while. Definitely. And I think the most, probably the one thing that all people remember is Red Day. We have KW Red Day as well, where, you know, we, that's our main day of really giving back. Well, we have KW Cares. Mm-hmm. We have KW Kids Can, and we have Red Day. And those activities are a result of having culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's they awesome. in and of themselves, that's not the culture, but it's the result mm-hmm. of having culture. Yeah. And those are fabulous, fabulous days. Red Day is when we go out into the community and we do things for the community. Mm-hmm. And kids can. We teach kids in high school about entrepreneurship. And then we award them scholarships for inventions so they can get a patent. Mm-hmm. We give some college scholarships. And then Katie B. Cares is where <laughs> we spend millions and millions helping in disasters and horrible things that happen to people. Yeah. Moving forward, where does your, because you, you continue to inspire, you continue to give back and you continue to teach, you know, even to this day, you know, a lot of people looking at kind of your backstory could have got to a point you think I, I'm happy, I've made it, I've, you know, from where I've come from to where I am now, you know, they could have quote retired I don't get the sense you're ever going to retire, and you probably don't either. No, I can't find retirement anywhere (laughs) in Scripture. And growing up, my favorite uncles, all three of them, died within two years of retirement. I've watched my friends who have retired, and many of them are gone. You see, I'll be 85 next month. And they're gone, and many of them are ill. And I want to be productive because that's how I think we're meant to be until I just drop dead, <laughs> until the Lord takes me to my real home. <laughs> where, where does, I guess, back to, I think I know the answer to this, but I want to ask it anyway, is from your early ages of, of being a teacher and giving back, and you do a lot of stuff. I mean, you have your own, you know, the website and you have Mo's Mornings is just one of the things that you do. Where does the inspiration for giving back personally through kind of you speaking down the camera rather than developing systems for agents to pass on and team leaders to pass on? Where does it come from that you individually want to look down the camera yourself and talk to people? My desire to give back actually comes from my father. My father had no money. He could never give money. If he had a dime left in his pocket, that was a miracle. But he gave his time. So if some member of our community, rural community died, guess who was the first one there? 
my dad. And when um, a farmer was ill and he couldn't farm his land, guess who was the first one there? And so I saw this growing up. My mother would cook for these people. She would use her garden vegetables or whatever to make dishes for them. So neither of my parents could give a dime, but they could give of their time. And so it was just um, something I saw in my home but the one thing that happened that made all the difference in the world was an incident that occurred in Enid, Oklahoma, when I was in grade school. And my father and I were in our 1936 Ford that worked once in a while. <laughs> and he, we finished at the feed store, and then he took me to the Carnegie Library. I'd been there before because we couldn't afford books, so that's where we checked out some books to read. And he opened, he came around, opened my side of the car door, and he took my hand and he led me up the steps of that beautiful old building. And he stood there and said, I have a story I want to tell you. He told me about a man named Andrew Carnegie, a very controversial man. He said that he grew up in poverty, and when he was older, he made a fortune in steel, and he actually owned steel mills. As he aged, he decided that he wanted to take care of his family, so he did trusts or whatever, and he wanted to give his money away before he died. Now, after take caring, taking care of his family, he ended up with $350 million left over. This was in 1916 or 17, so sometime in that decade. And he um, decided that what he wanted to do was build libraries across the United States. Now, what is interesting to me is that $350 million back then is equivalent to maybe close to $3 billion today. <laughs> Talk about your dollar devaluing. There you have it. <laughs> so he put together a committee who did all of the work because he was becoming quite ill. And they would buy the lot, build the building, beautiful old buildings. They would purchase the books. They would hire the staff and operate it for one year and then turn it over to the city. He looked at me that day, and he finished this lesson about this man named Andrew Carnegie, and he said something that I think is shocking for a man who had an eighth-grade education and a man who had no money. Because you don't hear this today. He said, Hun, 
I want you to always respect the wealthy because they usually give back. Yeah, we don't hear that today. And all you hear today are the talking heads who say the wealthy need to give more taxes. Well, let me tell you what. I give all the taxes I need to give. And if I could have control of that tax money, I would help far more people than they're helping. Mm -hmm. How's that for a little bit of politics? (laughs) That's a great lesson. Um, And in that moment, he did two things for me. Number one, he made it okay for me to make money. And it was in that moment that I declared as a child that when I grew older, I was going to make more money than I needed so I could give it away. Because remember, I couldn't buy my parents a Christmas present. I couldn't buy my friends a birthday present. There wasn't any money. The second thing he did in that moment was he made it clear to me that if you had money, you give it away. Yeah. One of the things I remember you talking about when I first came to a conference was abundance, right? And, and that exact point is, is making as much money as you can make and then doing as, the best job that you can to give away and to make the rest of the world a better place. That's right. And that's, uh, that's a great lesson for sure. Coming forward, can you tell us about kind of your next big adventure and what are you what you're doing at Wacomus right now? Well, um, I've thought a lot about legacies worth leaving, and I wrote a book, the book that you have referred to as a legacy for my grandchildren, and I also began to think about the decades. And my 70s absolutely was my best decade because I wrote the book. I did 44 videos about character for the company. Uh, I had 55 seminars across the U.S. that year. Uh, Oh, my goodness, I can't even remember all that I did. But I have to tell you that my 80s started with a bang because I was shockingly um, inducted into the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, which brings tears to my eyes every time I talk about it, uh, because that was so far outside my realm of thinking, being a tenant farmer's kid. And um, it was one of the most meaningful nights of my life. Um, <clears throat> and and my 80s are so exciting. You know, it's coming in really strong, even though COVID hit, even though we've had struggles in our 80s, it's still is turning out to be a great decade. So I'm thinking about my 50s, what I have to do to stay healthy so I can have a really productive, I mean, not my 50s, my 90s. I'm thinking about my 90s and thinking about what I have to do 
to stay healthy, to have a productive night. In fact, the truth is I'm even thinking about my hundreds. Yeah. So um, one of, and I've thought a lot about legacy. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've done to create a legacy is we have invested a lot of money in our little hometown because when Richard lived there and I lived in the country near that town, it was thriving. You know, two grocery stores, two automobile um, dealerships, 40 businesses, a women's study club who sent me to Girls' State, which was kind of a turning point in my life. It was vibrant and alive, and a lot of immigrants lived there, and they had such pride of ownership. It was a wonderful, wonderful place. And we've watched it because through the years, because the children of the immigrants chose the big cities, they didn't come back to our little town. And we watched it literally die. And one day we drove in town and I said to Richard, if we were rich like Warren Buffett, (laughs) I would buy the whole downtown if I could, build new buildings, and then I would put in a new street that goes out to Highway 81. I would put hanging baskets, have a water system to water them, and I created a vision. He looked at me and he said, Who's going to come to walk home us? <laughs> and he kind of laughed at me. Years later, years later, 40 years, 50 years later, he came home one night and he said, I have a chance to buy a block, almost a block in Wacomus. And I think because the buildings are dangerous, you know, they're old and they're crumbling. I think I'll just tear them down and plant grass and just have a nice grassy era, uh, area. Then he came home a few weeks later and brought me a picture that he had drawn of what he thought he might want to build there. And I said, why are you going to build that? Who's going to come to walk home us? <laughs> so he ended up building that street and um and I'm now working um uh, one or two times a month with all the little the little businesses the the cafe which is called Moe's place and the gift shop which is called the painted buffalo and then the barber shop which is called Shorty's, and it's in the same location that Shorty's was located when we lived there. And inside, there's a picture of my dad getting his hair cut with the real Shorty, Shorty Underwood. And then he made the, the end of the block a memorial to the early day settlers of the area. He also added um, a chapel, and then he built um, this beautiful little flower garden with a pergola, and then he built four apartments. 
just recently he purchased our old drugstore where we all hung out because it was not safe. And he's going to do some building mm-hmm. across the street. And it's just been the most rewarding and exciting thing of all to see life mm-hmm. come back into that town. We give the high school students seniors scholarships each year. And we built a family retreat up there that is beautiful and lovely. And we've turned it into a B&B. And so um, our little town is starting to get pretty and it's starting to be busy. You drive into town when the restaurants open and cars are parked all over the place. We have a series of events called Wacomus Welcomes. One, the first one was Wacomus Welcomes Christmas. The second one was Wacomus Welcomes First Responders, and they came from all of the surrounding towns and villages around us. There were hun- several hundred people there, and... Um, and then we just last Saturday did Wacomus Welcomes Easter. And, and we've got a whole bunch more of those for the rest of the year. So it, get, it brings us great joy to know that when we're gone, hopefully those little businesses will continue. And we have people saying they want to move there, but there aren't any houses for sale so we're we have a land planner right now planning a piece of land that we own and i don't know if we'll be able to build some housing but if we had the pop if we had 500 more in population or even 250 it would really enhance the businesses of that little town and um it's, it's been a really rewarding pro, uh, project, not monetarily yet, but just rewarding in knowing that we're leaving a legacy that's positive and wonderful. Yeah. Because we're 85 almost. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Finishing up, you you just mentioned you know being inducted. That was the start of, of, of your eighties when you being inducted, and that was one of the greatest moments. Can you expand on that a little bit and talk about you know kind of that whole process? You know, how did you find out who who made that phone call to you, and and then that whole process of the day, the night, who who inducted you? You know, who who introduced you on stage, and and some of your class members too. So I come home, I have a call from Shannon Rich asking me to call her. And so I called and she shared with me I'd been chosen. And I think, I can't remember for sure, I think I said to her, haven't you made a mistake? (laughs) Because, see, I didn't know that there was any act, I didn't realize there was that kind of activity on the application. And then when I got word, when she told me I'd been chosen, um, I hung up the phone from her. 
And I went over and sat down in a chair and just cried because I couldn't believe it. Then I got me a new dress and started looking forward <laughs> to the actual uh, ceremony. And then I found out that Reed Drummond and Carrie Underwood were going to be installed. And I was amazed to think that I would get to meet them. And here I am, just a peon. <laughs> I don't have... I, I have a lot of Keller Williams people who know me, but I'm really not that well known in town and because I'd been living in Austin for 10 years, or well, actually more, because I don't think I really came back much until probably 13 years. And here was Carrie and Ree and... I thought, oh, th this is going to be hard to give a speech in front of them. And um, but I just was so happy to think and wished my parents could see it, uh, that I just shared from my heart and I was relaxed and, and um, I just loved the evening. And the person who announced me was the president of our company. And I loved what he did. I didn't know he was going to do this, but he had interviewed people. So he introduced me by saying what those people had said about me. And then the, the most fun thing of all was when Keller Williams found out I had all these people who called and wanted to come. So um, I got seats for them. And um, I, I think I had, oh my goodness, a huge number of tables. I can't remember how many now, but they were from the, from the East Coast, the West Coast, and... They were from all over the place. And then I had, closer to the event, I probably had another 30 who wanted to come, but it was sold out, and they didn't get to come. Just to think that when they heard about it, I think Kelly told them, <laughs> and they came, it just meant the world to me. So it was it was almost better than a wedding. <laughs> oh, I loved it. Yeah. I just still think about that evening. And then my personal assistant put together a book for me. I did hire a photographer mm -hmm. for that night, and I have the greatest book. When I shared it with Judy Love and Jane Giroux and Ann Johnstone and some of my friends, Judy said, where did you get that book? <laughs> it is so good that she put mm -hmm. this together and had little sayings in it. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. So I will have fond memories the rest of my life from that book. That's amazing. And you're very much involved. I saw you at the, the Hall of Fame last year, and, and you were coming oh, to the I lunches. Oh, I haven't missed any. You haven't missed one, yeah. I don't think I've missed any. I, I went to a number, mm -hmm. several of them before 
I was ever nominated, I didn't know that you could go. And when I saw that Neil McCaleb had been inducted, I got all over him for not inviting me because I ended up seeing it on TV, which I think is wonderful that people have many chances to see it. And I was so proud of him, and I think so much of him and George and his wife. And um, I wouldn't miss one. And then this past year, Jim Stovall, uh, I've used him for Keller Williams, and I know the impact he had on the agents. And I just... I'm so excited about him. By the way, he wrote a bunch of books during COVID, and one of them was The Will to Win, which is about Will Rogers High School and students in the high school. And now we're raising money for a movie, for him, for them to make a movie of that story because this will perpetuate the legacy of Will Rogers. We're discovering that the younger generation, you know, don't know him. Mm-hmm. And when I grew up, that that and the Pioneer Woman in Ponca City was where we went for vacation every year. <laughs> That's awesome. uh, if we got to take one. Yeah. Well, Mo, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking some time out your morning to speak with us. Um, congratulations again on being inducted. I know it means the world to you. Um, but for people listening, I'll put a link to your book in the description and all the other links that you know, the website and the places they can find you. Um, and yeah, um, looking forward to seeing the the, the progress in Wacomus. I need to go visit now, now that you've turned it around. Oh, it's amazing. I can't wait. And uh, for people listening, we will catch you next episode. Cheers. This podcast is presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, telling Oklahoma stories through its people since 1927. Follow them online at oklahomahof.com and definitely on Instagram at oklahomahof. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.